when you say it infuriates you, I wholeheartedly believe that is the exact right emotion to feel. I don't have an introduction or anything flashy. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of, <laughs> we pick it up in midstream and we start talking. And maybe one day I'll, I mean, you've seen my level of technological ability. So <laughs> at some point I'll figure out how to do all this stuff. But I want people to get to know you. And I want people to, you know, like you did when you had me on your channel and, and your audience got to know me some. And so I want Disciple Dojo audience to get to know Elder Mike Holloway of your urban church. And that's what this is all about. And I just want to talk to you about just stuff that I think is interesting. And because you're the second guest, you're guest number two. So uh, you're following Carmen Imes, good friend of mine, uh, Old Testament scholar. So big shoes to fill with her. I know. Uh, so you got to bring it. You got to bring the goods in this. <laughs> but tell tell disciple dojo viewers who like who are you? What what it what do you do? I put on here. You know, I get to talk to an urban apologist, and some people are like, I don't even know what that is. So, who are you? What's an urban apologist? And what is your 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 background? How did you get started doing what you're doing? Give us give us the nutshell of that. Yes, sir. So I am Elder Mike Holloway. Uh, I attend Power, Hope, and Grace Bible Church. It is uh, in the heart of the city of Detroit. We do urban ministries right within uh, our community. You know, we help those that are in the area as well as those that come from afar just to come for ministry and things like that. Um, I got started in apologetics probably and this is probably into some form about 25 years ago when a close friend of mine's um became jehovah witness oh. and and you know i had been saved maybe six years or so and i i didn't know all the tenets of the jehovah witness so it made me dig into it like wow you know i was very concerned i'm like wait a minute so i started to study the jehovah witness doctrine and of course found out how bad and heretical it was and so and, and so i would study it just so i could defend the faith to this person or try to reach this person and from that moment it, it became like a, a passion for me. And so I started branching off into other things and uh, many other doctrines that would come within the urban community. So you asked about what is an urban apologist? Well, well, we all know that apologist would be somebody who defends the faith. So an urban apologist would then would be somebody who would defend the faith in urban cultures, or there could be specific yeah. doctrines or or, or religions that try to attack the urban communities uh, that may not, you know, attack communities uh, in other areas. So, you know, I, I start studying those and just to become a help uh, to the people in my community to help bring people to truth. Yeah. And you're I mean, you're straight up urban community because you're Detroit, like yes, the sir. heart of Detroit. I mean, that is it doesn't get more urban than that. A major yeah. city, uh, a city that has its own personality, history, struggles. Right. Um, do you know do you know Jason Wilson? Up there, the, the Cave of Adullam Training Center. I, I need to connect you. So he he does, okay. he's a martial artist, friend of mine. You uh-huh. might have seen his YouTube videos. He works with boys, especially with uh, boys that don't have fathers. And mm-hmm. through the martial arts, he mentors. Um, wow. There's a documentary coming out with that Lawrence Fishburne and him are releasing at Tribeca. about. It's called The Cave of Adullam, which is where David trained his mighty men. 
And uh, I was thinking about that. I was like, I, I have two friends, both minister in Detroit, both solid brothers in the Lord. I need to connect these guys. Yes, sir. If for no other reason, then y'all need to know about each other so that when I right. come up and visit Detroit, I don't have to make two trips. We can all just right. hang out together. Yes, sir. <laughs> I'm going to send you his link, though. I think you'd really resonate with what he's doing because it's, it's pretty insightful. Um, he's been on Joe Rogan and he, you know, documentary hmm. coming out this year. And it's, yeah, y'all, y'all need to know each other. I'm going to, I'm okay. going to be the, the ginger connection that <laughs> unites the two of you. So let's talk about this. Cause it's an elephant in the room. Sometimes mm-hmm. we got a white guy and a black guy sitting here talking, using the word urban. And sometimes that gets, that's coded language. Some people sure. say urban when they really mean black in a way that's shady. And some people use it because they mean no urban as in not in the countryside. So yeah. I want to know how one, have you ever encountered that discomfort with the word itself or the different shades and the different nuances? And two, how do you, how do you talk about uh, issues that are like racial issues that mm-hmm. do impact disproportionately black communities, but they aren't limited to black communities because urban is bigger than just black communities. So just kind of, I, I want to hear your thoughts on that. There's not really a directed question, Right. Of more of just like, how do you do? How do you approach this this minefield of rhetorical carefulness that people venture with? Yeah, absolutely. So that that's actually a great question because um, I had a friend of mine's. You know, when he, uh, you know, heard the name of, you know, my particular ministry of your urban church, said, "Well, Mike, maybe, you know, maybe you ought to change the name. You know, um, you know, you don't want to turn other people off." So the way I interpret it is that maybe I'm turning him off. <laughs> so, because like you say, when you hear the term urban, a lot of people, they automatically, they think black, but, but no, I do think, however, when we talk about urban ministries, we are particularly dealing with ministries within urban communities. And sometimes within those communities, uh, there, there could be some racism. There could be, you know, uh, uh, marginalization and other things that take place within those communities. But what I found out and what I try to stress is, you know, the truth is the same, whether you live in the urban community, or whether you live in other communities abroad, the truth is the same. And so there shouldn't be a truth for urban communities that's different from a truth in other communities. But what, what I found and really what gave me a passion to get into the ministry within urban communities is because I found all the bad doctrines that seeped into urban communities. And what happens with many false teachers and false prophets, they come into urban communities or, or many communities or people who may be desperate or seeking uh, help and they take advantage of them through false doctrine, you know, sow a seed in this and bless. If you want to come out of poverty, uh, do this. And and so I think it is a need to have some specific focused ministry to those communities to help people not become desperate to get out of their circumstances so much so that they accept bad teaching. So my focus mm-hmm. is bringing truth to the urban community. Yeah. And it's, I don't, I don't think there's a single I don't think you can, like, you know, urban communities by nature aren't homogenous, you right. know, like there, there are different aspects, even within the same urban area, like whether it's Metro Charlotte down here or urban Detroit or Manhattan, any right. of these large, you know, Los Angeles, it's massive. And, and so mm-hmm. within the city, there are going to be different 
communities and people target different communities. And I, I do think like, I don't know if you can think of like a Venn diagram where I think like the, what we would call colloquially the black church, just mm-hmm. the traditional black church experience, right. which is, is its own identity. I mean, it's not hermetically sealed, you know, but because uh, my father was a pastor at a predominantly black church that I was born into. Um, I was definitely the whitest, whitest kid in that church, <laughs> but, um, but, okay, but so it was, it was, it wasn't, we... <laughs> I was so, uh, listen, we had a picture. I'll tell you this story. One of uh, it's a picture my parents took and there was, there was a, a guy in the church. I can't remember his name cause I was just a baby, but he was, he, all the, the people at church would like lovingly tease him cause he was so, so dark that they would call him blue. And it's just like, you're blue. That's how dark you are. And I was so white that the flash on a camera would make me blue <laughs> and like, like the other end of the spectrum of blue. And so we had this picture. I need to find it for my mom, but it, the two of us, me, he, I think he's holding me and it was taken with a flash. And so he's like the darkest shade that you can be. And I'm the lightest shade and the can't, we're just like, it's just this shades of, of blue skin color. And that's what I was like. <laughs> Every culture, every color, every race has like these variations in between and kind of hierarchies and, and all that stuff. And, um, but there, there are identifiable, I say that, say like the black church, when, when that term's used, like my friend, uh, who I went to school with Esau McCulley, he's written Mm -hmm. a lot on the black church. His book reading while black is really good. I've I've Hmm. recommended it. Carmen and I both recommended it in the interview with her. And he he talks about the historically black church. And I think you can Mm -hmm. do that as long as everybody understands you're not talking about every black person or every black community. Absolutely. Because, and I want to hear what you think about this because a a historically black church in Brunswick, Georgia, you know, middle of kind of country swamp, low country area of Georgia. That's, that's almost entirely black is incredibly different in some ways from a church in urban Detroit, but incredibly similar in other ways. There's, there's overlap. Um, and so I, how do you, how do you see your urban church? Do you see your urban church connecting to people who identify with part, let's say they identify with, with how the black community typically gets targeted by groups like black Hebrew Israelites or Jehovah's witness or others. They identify with that. But the urban aspect, they can't, you know, they're country folk. They, they, they went to a little church in the middle of the pasture with the pastor that, you know, how do you, do you see, how do you see your relationship with somebody like that who tunes into your channel? Yeah. You know, what's, what's interesting is those that follow me, uh, I have a, a, a wide range of, of people from different cultural backgrounds, not just mm-hmm. uh, the urban community, kind of which points back to, what I initially said about truth being truth and, and anybody who loves truth, you know, I could, you know, I could listen to anybody if they're talking the truth, you know what I mean? And so I found myself connecting with people from, from various different uh, backgrounds, but you said something I think that's key within those communities, whether it's uh, in the, in the inner urban communities or, or the country, right? Sometimes we do face those similar issues. So for, Mm. for the black community, uh, it could be the 
uh, Hebrew Israelites, right? <laughs> but for some of those other communities, it could be the Mormons, right? Yeah. And so at the at the end of the day, and my pastor uses this reference, and I thank God for my pastor, uh, Dr. Quentin Wingate. One of the things he says is, you know, typically when it comes to people who are in banking or people who work with money, the best way to teach a person how to identify counterfeit money is by making them more familiar with that which is not counterfeit right when you get yes. that down you'll pick the counterfeit up easy because you're so familiar with that which is right and so we treat the bible the same way familiarize people with truth and her the heresies will point will stand out like a, a, a red flag yeah I, that's that's a great way i've heard that uh, my dad, who's a pastor as well, used that analogy a lot. Um, mm -hmm. And then in college, somebody used a more apt for college students was like, hey, you know how you get good at spotting a fake ID? You know what the real ID looks like. And because, uh, you know, college kids have all kinds of fake IDs that they try to float past the security. And but, yeah, they don't they don't look at every kind of error out there. Exactly. You You focus on the truth. I feel like somebody doesn't have to be part of the demographic that we are trying to reach with ministry to benefit right. from the ministry. I think sometimes like me listening to, I try to read global voices in the church, you know, like Christians mm -hmm. in India, Christians in, you know, um, the Middle East, what do they, how do they read these passages? So on my shelf, I've got a couple of commentaries, South Asia commentary, the Africa Bible commentary, um, you know, the Asian Bible commentary, because I'm not, I don't live in those communities, but right. they will tune me into issues that I would never have even thought about. Like, oh, yeah, scripture does speak to that issue. I, I wouldn't have. I've never. Well, I haven't had to. I haven't had to face those things that they have. And I think that in ministry and in culture, I mean, not just in ministry, I think our culture could benefit from listening cross-culturally. You remember when Barbershop came out? Yes, sir. Remember the movie? That was that was one of my favorite cultural moments when that came out because it was the first time for a majority of let's say like white America that that's not urban and doesn't have normal uh, interactions with black communities. It was the first time that they kind of got a glimpse of what just barbershop talk is, mm -hmm. and the thing is that movie was pretty successful. Because, but even among, I think even among white audiences, because it was like, this wasn't made for you, but if you want to watch and listen in, it, this is what goes on and it's funny. And this is what, you know, and it, mm -hmm. it was like a lot of people were like, oh yeah, this is good. This is, I, I can't relate to, you know, South side of Chicago right? and I'm as white as can be. And this is not what my barbershop is like at all, but this is engaging this is fascinating this is interesting this is funny you know it was just kind of getting a peek and i think if there if we could find ways even within the church of listening across those divides That's so um true. you know democrats republicans you know hardcore conservatives nationalists immigrant advocates like all of these different groups that kind of self-segregate red letter christians or the reformed crowd you know mm -hmm. like if they kind of listen to each other there you can gain a lot from it i mean i i appreciate when i don't know nearly as much as you about the different cult groups and the different aberrant teachings that you've had to deal with so i appreciate your voice you know voice, like i listen I to it and i'm like 
this is needed. That's part of the reason I want Disciple Dojo viewers to be aware of what you're doing. Everybody can benefit from even those problems that are outside of our own particular culture. Yeah. And I think it's helpful to do so as well, because, you know, all of us are human and, you know, we can typically stereotype people without even realizing it, you know, have our own yeah. biases, our stereotyping, but it's, I think, uh, important to start engaging those cultures. I like what you talked about having an Asian commentary and other ethnic different commentaries, because once you engage the cultures, maybe you're not as familiar with the language or, or the nuances and the way that people, uh, you know, handle their business. However, we're all similar in some way. There's just, you know, we have different ways of communicating. I even say that when, we, when it comes to the black church, I'm, you know, uh, born and raised in the black church and I enjoy the experience we have. You know, we are uh, more exuberant in our, in this demonstrative in, my, in our worship. And I love it. I love it. The, the, at the end of the day, it's about what's being preached over the pulpit. But sometimes people, if they're not familiar with those cultural uh, nuances, oftentimes, you know, people come with preconceived notions, oh, they must not be teaching truth. And that's just not the case all the time. We shouldn't judge that way. I agree, man. I'll tell you, I used to go when I lived in Macon, Georgia. Uh, that was where I went to high school and dad was a pastor. So we kind of moved around South Georgia, but I did late middle school and, and high school in Macon. And I would go every Christmas Eve, I would go to the midnight mass with some friends of mine. One was Catholic and uh, others were just kind of not really anything, but they liked the idea of church at midnight. They thought that was cool. And it's in a cathedral, which is, you know, it's, and I remember going and sitting there looking around and being like, this is really cool. Like that symbol up there on the roof or that image or what I recognize that. Oh, I know that Bible story, you know, or, or even the symbolism, because I, I was an art, uh, studied art in college. And so what we had to learn in art history about cathedrals and the way they're constructed and, and the elements of the gospel that were even in the, the symbols that most people, if let's say if they're raised Catholic, by that time, they just it, it didn't even register because it was so familiar to them. Mm. For me, as a you know lifelong Methodist preacher's kid going in there, it was cool because I was I was able to appreciate a lot of things because they were so different to me because they were not what I was used to at all. And I think it's that way at its best in any culture. When you go to another, like within the church, when you go to another form of worship, you yeah. know, when you go to a, 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 a loud shouting gospel black church that, and, and you come from a Presbyterian, we sit on our hands and, you know, <laughs> maybe get an amen under our breath every now and then going to that is, it is, is a, cross-cultural experience within the church oh yeah and it's i think it's a great thing uh, you just you pick up you learn you learn stuff that you appreciate stuff you never would absolutely you know we're not all the same and yeah. uh you know when i'm watching a football game i mean my wife has to tell me would you keep it down you know i'm jumping <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm expressing it so i'm expressing <laughs> it in my worship as well so <laughs> yeah are you a lions big lions fan it's hard to be a Lions fan. <laughs> it is. It is. I felt bad for y'all because uh, uh, Stafford was your boy for 
Yes. Forever. And then when he leaves, goes and gets yeah. a Super Bowl. And I was, so he went to Georgia. So I'm a Stafford fan because he played for us at UGA. Oh, that's so, right. I, so I, my heart goes out to uh, <laughs> yes. the, the Lions fans. Pray for us. Yeah. Pray for us. And there's <laughs> the most, some of the most committed fans there are. Like every year, it's like, you know, I think this might be our this year. This could be the year. This could be the All year. All my life, every year could be the year. <laughs> well, every year since 1980, two i think no since 1980 was our year at georgia to win the national championship every year and finally this past year we won it so persevere man you guys can do it you just got to persevere listen what'll happen with us it'll be two seconds left on the clock and lions up about to win and the lord will return <laughs> and 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 there will be a part of you. Don't lie. There will be a part of you that'll be a little upset that he couldn't have waited five minutes. Right. <laughs> I love it. Well, I want to know. I want to get people to get to know a little bit more about you personally. Uh, sure, sure. Lions fan from Detroit. Uh, give me give me your favorite movie of all time. Ah, now that now that's one I was thinking about the question. I have a few favorite movies. But I'm, well, I'm, you know, this might be a little crazy, uh, but I like some of those older movies. I like the movies, The Untouchables. Right? Okay, you know, and I also uh-huh. like movies like Armageddon is like one of my all-time favorite movies as well. Yeah, so, for real. My wife teases me because when we were in the movie, she glanced over at me and she thought she saw a tear duck. I told her, <laughs> told her I was my sinuses acting up. It was nothing. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it tugged at the heartstrings, huh? Just, exactly. Uh, such a beautiful image of self-sacrifice and exactly. altruism for right. the sake of the earth. That's great. That's actually on the on an episode of The Office. I think Michael made fun of Dwight because he cried at Really? The ending of Armageddon, and he was like, "No, no, it was because it was Christmas Eve and a single snowflake fell." And I, just... <laughs> I love it. Uh, what about TV? What, what TV shows you, were your favorite growing up or favorite now? Growing up, you know, I used to like, uh, you know, the old Batman. You know, Bam, and you saw the words. <laughs> yes, I used to yes. love those. Um, but now, you know, I like, I love everybody loves Raymond. Like, I'm. I'm on the floor laughing almost every episode. You know, my yeah. wife looks at me like, what is so funny? <laughs> and she likes it, but not like I do. She says, uh, I'm all, always cracking up, but I re- <laughs> everybody loves Raymond is like one of my favorite episodes. I mean, shows. Yeah, that's my, my parents really like that show as well. Really? I can't, it's, I'm not, I'm single guy, never been married, no family. Okay. So it's, it's a little harder for me to relate. I think that my married friends have a deeper appreciation because <laughs> they've been through and had some of those same conversations. <laughs> I don't know what in-laws are like. And uh, yeah. Now music wise, what do you, who, who's your jam? I'm, I primarily listen to gospel. Uh, mm-hmm. And you know, I, I'm like uh, Fred Hammond is like one of my favorite all time artists. Um, you know, it doesn't hurt that he's from Michigan and uh, you know, the old com- commission group. Um, I just, just love them. But I, I really love all kind of music. You know, it's one of the, mm. my uh, other loves. All my children, my whole family basically come up musicians. My sons play at churches, bass guitar, piano, organs. I mean, yeah. so I, I, there's really no aspect of music that I don't love. I, I love all you, music. You, you, born, you were born and raised in Detroit? Yes. Yes, sir. Yeah. So you're like uh, heart of Motown. 
Absolutely. experience. You're all about, yeah, that makes sense. I get yes, it. Sir. What about your favorite novel? Can't say the Bible and it can't be like a Christian book. That's cheating. Listen, it's gotta be a favorite work of fiction. Probably the hardest question in the world. I'm not a big novel <laughs> person. I really am not like, um, yeah. I mean, graphic uh, novels count as novels, so you can even pick a comic book if that was ever your thing. Okay, but... that might help. I was, <laughs> growing up, I did like the Marvel comics uh, yeah. books. So, so if that if I could use that, that that works. <laughs> hey, I got a whole uh, shelf right across from me of nothing but Marvel graphic novels. So you're in you good hands here at Disciple Dojo. Yeah, Superhero Seminary, I'm telling you. Yes, that's right. Yes, there's there's a lot of theological wisdom in those pages. So. <laughs> I try to post on Instagram when I come across a panel that's got something profound, which there's a lot of it. I'll post mm -hmm. it with like a little caption and, and then point people over to Superhero Seminary. All right, so what I know you probably keep a strict, clean diet, but when you just want to jump junk food out, what are you grabbing? Ooh. See, this is hard. It's so much. That's why. But I, <laughs> ice cream, um, ice cream. It's just, it's just hard to turn down. And I like yeah. all kind of junk food. I, I got to do. <laughs> I, I've started doing better. Here now and again, I backslide a little. And, uh, why can't I? We just uh, found this place in Pontiac. It's like some of the best ice cream. What's ever. it called? Give him a shot. When, when, oh my God, it was, I only been there one time and when it's either Winship ice cream. I think that's it. I could get, got that wrong. We were, we went there one time and yeah, we got to go back. We, and that was like a couple weeks ago. So yeah, it was uh, like a little mom and pop place or like a local yes. chain. Or... Yeah. It was right in downtown Pontiac and uh, they got yeah. several little shops and I went in and oh my goodness. So <laughs> I, ice cream is one of my favorites. that's your weakness favorites. you're in yes. you're in the freezer yes. at like 12 a uh, yeah. 2 a.m <laughs> exactly eating right out of the carton <laughs> yes sir <laughs> yes well who was we circle back because you know i am a superhero nerd you gotta tell me as a kid and that had to be a comic book but who favorite like who is your hero growing oh, up batman it's the greatest superhero yes sir <laughs> <laughs> now this is i haven't even seen the new one that came out yet but i haven't batman. either okay i have i've seen all the other ones i haven't either i batman's a very polarizing choice i've found mm. people either love him and they think he's greatest ever like one of my jujitsu partners is like i mean actually a couple of them would be batman if they could choose to yeah. be or the other in the spectrum they're like he's not he doesn't have any superpowers he's just a rich guy with a bunch of toys and he couldn't even tell that clark kent is superman and he's the world's greatest detective come on so that's the push i'm just i'm don't shoot the messenger i'm just giving pushback just you are free to have your own movie, heroes in the movie <laughs> batman did beat superman up i'm just saying he did. <laughs> listen all my batman fan friends will say a hearty amen Yes, sir. <laughs> so you're in good company with that. <laughs> well, I, I asked this question to Carmen when I had her on, and I want to ask you mm -hmm. because I, want, I always want to ask people this when they come in the dojo. Who are some voices that you think Christians, especially Christians, need to be listening to right now in, in our culture, in church history? They don't have to be alive now. They could be voices yeah, from the yeah. past or people now. Just... Throw out some people who have who you think more people need to be reading or listening to or watching or whatever these voices. Yeah. Give me give me some people that we should know about that should be on our radar. This this first one, um, 
you're definitely going to be with me on that. Christopher J.H. Wright. I mean, if, if you're not my reading man. him, you're, you're not reading him. You are missing out. Oh, my God. Preach. One, Preach. This man is, is revolutionized your thinking. I mean, just an awesome, awesome mm -hmm. writer. Um, but I'll tell you a couple of uh, olders, like one in particular um, is Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is like, okay. Mm -hmm. uh, amazing and, and you know and he's even you know he's more reformed but oh my yeah. gosh when it comes to a great teacher his his systematic theology and you can go on youtube actually and get some of his old sermons oh mm -hmm. my goodness dr martin lloyd jones is certainly one of my favorite of course your, your charles spurgeons has some great stuff uh out there um listen to this know. listen to this arminian throwing out calvinist names <laughs> left and right people if you think he's biased that's you right. just need to realize that that Mike is not an, a Calvinist, but he has just dropped two Calvinist giants and exactly. vouched for their work. So that shows you that we uh, we non-Calvinists we read y'all. You know, nobody's <laughs> perfect, right? So <laughs> we agree on that. No, who? All right. So who else then? Those are those I are some good picks. Your channel, man. I think more people need to get on the yeah. Disciple Dojo. I mean, I agree. I've even went to your. <laughs> <laughs> I went to your website, the information. As a matter of fact, you know, and you'll be back. You know, I, I've, we've been talking about, I got to have yeah. you even back. But I mean, the resources that you put out, I think are very helpful and could bless a lot of people, which is really what we're all about. Hmm. Educating people in urban cultures who may not be exposed to that that level of truth or that level of information. Man, I, yeah. what you do is great, man. Keep up the great work. Man, I, I that was unsolicited, folks, and I thoroughly appreciate it. It means a lot to me too, uh, because I, I'm the same way. I point people to your stuff, and appreciate and it. among those voices that people need to be hearing, tying into that, because all about like this cultural moment. I want to talk about you. Always, we've talked about like the black church, and then especially since the the Trump era, there's been the phrase that's shot up in Google searches: white evangelicalism, <laughs> and those are two i i have a very distinct view when i use the term white evangelical what i think of because of me being a white evangelical and having grown mm -hmm. up in 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 the big tent evangelicalism like christianity today evangelicalism not john MacArthur evangelicalism and i see those as two very different things but mm -hmm. a lot of people just kind of lump it all together and just see it as you know you're white and you're evangelical so you got to believe all of this um and it's hard to even have discussions about that kind of stuff because people, it, you, you can relate to this. You talk to Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, um, mm -hmm. you know, black Hebrews, whites, others, they use the same words as you, right. but have entirely different meanings behind those words. Yes, and so I think when you, when we have discussions about this church in general, or the white church, the black church, even the Hispanic church, the Asian church. You know, when we do that, we 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 have what we know we mean when we say it. But then the person we're talking to, they may have a completely different concept of what it means. Right. All of that being a disclaimer okay. for us to talk. What would you, I'd like to hear what Elder Mike thinks that, because you do a lot of stuff that traditionally black churches have been, uh, hit with in terms of the cults and the false teachings and, and the nonsense mm -hmm. and all that stuff. Exactly. I want to know what you see and you can be as candid or as guarded as you would like. 
and I can edit out anything if you're like, oh, I don't want to say that. But I want to, if what you think, honestly, white evangelicalism, however you want to define it, needs to take to heart that maybe is not being uh, heeded as well by white evangelicals. Yeah, I think one of the things, um, you know, that, and again, I've already kind of admitted that we all can have biases, so I'm certainly not casting a stone at anybody, <laughs> but sir, some, sometimes there can be um, already this preconceived notion that um, within the black church or churches within urban communities don't teach or preach truth, you know, and that bothers me. Matter of fact, mm -hmm. there was a, I won't even say his name right now, but there one popular uh, scholar said that, you know, and, and in one sense, I certainly agree. If he's, if, he, if a person is saying that, uh, you know, that cults attack urban communities and there are many churches that are teaching false doctrine, then, hey, I'll be the first one to say amen, right? I, mm -hmm. In Detroit, you know, there's almost a church on every corner. And sadly, yeah. a lot of those churches aren't teaching truth. I don't have a, uh, so that is true. But to say that there aren't any urban community churches where truth is going forth, I thank God for Power, Hope, and Grace Bible Church right in the city of Detroit, where I attend, uh, mm -hmm. that preaches and teaches the truth. And so, and then going to something we talked about earlier when we were talking about the way we express our worship, oftentimes, you know, I've even heard some churches that were considered white evangelicals say that, you know, the way you clap or the way they sing it, it takes away from the word of God. And those things are just so, so crazy. They have to understand it, that we can have different cultural practice, different liturgy, you know, mm -hmm. but, but that doesn't take away from the word of God. Culturally, there can be differences. One of the things I appreciate about the Bible is even in Acts chapter number 15, uh, they, the apostles didn't try to remove the cultural nuances of the Gentiles, right? Mm -hmm. Just basically gave them some information on how they could fellowship amongst the Jews, right? We, mm -hmm. They didn't have to become Jews in order to be saved. It, it didn't get rid of all their cultural nuances. And, and so every culture could have different ways of how we honor God and worship God. So I would say to that, and, and again, this isn't everybody, but there are some people that look at it, they see a, a, a African-American church, they hear a choir, they, they hear singing and certain clapping sad to sad, and all of a mm. sudden they automatically uh, chalk those churches up as performance-based ministries. And that's just absolutely not true. We're worshiping the same God right? We're worshiping him uh, from our culture or our perspective in the same way a white evangelical church may be worshiping in theirs. That's a good insight. I think you're right. A lot of white evangelicals who have not been, who are non-charismatic. Mm -hmm. Charismatic white evangelicals don't really have those same critiques because their churches are doing a lot of the same stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, the non-charismatic white evangelicals, I think, are the harshest critics of like the i like how you said liturgy because black church worship for some people it looks like it's just oh they're you know hooping and hollering and shouting and jumping but it's like well that's that's actually a form of liturgy like that goes way way back and there's a there are cultural reasons for it there are reasons that have to do with any kind of worship that that makes its way via uh people who were formerly enslaved and of an African descent and where things like beat and rhythm and dance are integral mm -hmm. to culture. Of yeah. course you would want to use that 
in your worship, just as somebody who comes from some other pietistic setting where they value introspection and calm and rationale, you know, they would, they would gravitate to that. How can you critique without condemning? Cause you do yeah. a lot of critiquing and mm -hmm. we'll talk about in a minute, some of that, but how do you, how do you walk the line between critiquing something in a worship service or a teaching a, a sermon that needs to be critiqued versus, uh, you know, condemning or, or, or coming across as uh, condescending? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, at the end of the day, I think the Bible has to be the authority, right? And what we have to learn to do is not condemn what the Bible doesn't condemn. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's if a great point. If the Bible doesn't condemn me, then, then it, it may not be my personal preference. You know, some people may read out of the hymnals, books, Others mm. may not, right? And, and, a, and it's okay for people to have a preference, but let's not condemn what the Bible doesn't condemn. Again, mm. liturgical practices can vary amongst cultures and, and all types of people. Now, here's, I think part of the issue is there are extremes. So I'd be the first to say, there are some people who are acting crazy, preaching no word, and it is a show and it is emotionalism only you know and it is hyper sensationalism certainly i'll be the first to get on that uh get on the bullhorn and preach against that but what we have to be careful of is not judging everybody under that same umbrella at the same time i've heard of a church where they don't even want you to like if the choir sings a wonderful song don't clap afterwards it's giving glory to man wait a minute <laughs> To me, that's an, well, maybe not to some, but to me, that's an extreme. So, so there can be extremes on both ends. At the end yeah. of the day, if the scripture is the authority, it's okay for you to have your personal preferences, but let's not be overly judgmental or condemning that which the text does not. That's a great way. I, I, that's a that's a perfect foundational approach. Is is if scripture doesn't condemn it, don't con that mean we have to embrace it, right. but we can't condemn it, Thank you. and. Uh, yeah, I, that's perfectly said. I, you know, I was at dad's pastor at a couple of different churches growing up. And so we went from an inner city church, mm -hmm. probably, I don't know, 80, 90 percent black urban in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, okay. That's all I'd ever known. That's a church I was baptized in. We went from that to when I was about late elementary school, getting into middle school to a little town right outside of Savannah, Pooler, Georgia. Mm -hmm. Shout out to Pooler. And it was a 99.9% a white church, country, uh, not country, but kind of, well, we'd say redneck kind of country-ish, you know, just, uh, and so night and day. And it was so strange to me because they, somebody would do this amazing choir solo or this crescendo of something, you know, just a musical moment. And then when they were done, dead silence, dead <laughs> silence. And I even, I just remember thinking that, and I asked, I was like, mom, why isn't nobody clapping, you know? And she'd say, well, some people believe that you perform for God alone, not for the people. And if they clap, then that would be, you know, feeding into their pride. And I just thought, all right, all right. I, you know, I'm not going to condemn a church if that's their practice, but that's just so weird to me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Reading the book of Psalms and then that trying to think like clapping and, and excitement is out of place. It's just so weird, but Christians are weird and Christians across all cultures are weird. Yeah, like sure. there's weird things that Southern white evangelicals do. There are weird things that Northern pietists, you know, from 
coming down from the Puritans do. They're really weird things that out west, you know, Pacific Northwest Christians do. And we just have to, I love what you said. We just have to don't condemn it if scripture doesn't condemn it. But you can critique it if it's something absolutely. that kind of goes against what scripture does say. Oh, absolutely. So then on that note, when are you going to uh, stop promoting these pagan Christian holidays that you keep promoting and <laughs> take down that, that pagan Christmas tree that Jeremiah tells us not to do? <laughs> I have to remember that not everybody watching this video follows you on Facebook and has okay. discussions that you mm -hmm. get into. So what am I talking about to the viewers <laughs> by mentioning that? Tell me, a tell the viewers a little bit of what you deal with from a particular segment of, of, I don't know if they would even say they're part of the church, but from a particular segment of people who claim to follow Jesus, mm -hmm. uh, tell some of the stuff that you have to deal with in yes. regards to the holidays. We just had Easter, Ish Ishtar, Esther, <laughs> pagan fertility goddess worship right. service, apparently, according to some people. <laughs> uh, so yeah, un unpack that a little bit for the viewers. Yes, sir. So um, I deal again within the urban community. One of the um, cults um, that we have to contend with. And, and I, I want to be really careful here because there are some people who claim Israel descent that could be born again Christian. So I want to mm -hmm. I want to make that clear. Um, you know, because I'm, I'm sure we're going to get some hate mail and I don't want you to get uh, on the same list I'm on. So <laughs> Bring it. I, I will stand by you on every list you're on, my friend. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> but, but this cultic group that comes up is one, they uh, believe that most, most African-Americans are the actual Hebrew Israelites. Mm. And they're a very legalistic group in that they believe that we ought to be keeping the mosaic law uh i'm talking about going back to um the feast days all the the new moons the sabbaths the dietary laws and uh specifically getting to the feast days they say we should be following those days and not embracing these westernized paganistic uh holidays that we celebrate here in America, such as Christmas and as he talked about Easter and, and any other holiday. And so they believe that Christians have apostatized. We have mm -hmm. left the faith because we celebrate Christmas. You know, we, you know, and of course they'll totally misrepresent Jeremiah 10 <laughs> and make that about the Christmas tree. They'll, they'll, of course, they're going to bring up bunnies and eggs around Easter times when at least in my culture, you know, we call it resurrection day. Um, but, you know, and so they condemn these. And so every holiday season, you know, I typically find myself contending with many of these legalistic people. And that's what, uh, my brother JM was just talking about. <laughs> yeah. There's it's nonstop. You, you have a, you have, it's like you have to fight a battle on two fronts every holiday. You have mm -hmm. to fight a battle against the, the internet wiki skeptics who want to disprove every traditional belief by saying, Oh, this all came from paganism. And then you have people who want to piggyback off of that to show why Christians shouldn't have anything to do with it because they believe they should be following the Bible. So you have two different groups attacking uh, any 
Christian holiday that comes around from two different sides. One group attacking it because it's all nonsense and it's all fairy tales. And the other group attacking it because it came from something that's nonsense and fairy tales and you need to get back to the real thing. When So there's this interesting every year, right. two different, uh, it's like two <laughs> armies coming at you from both sides and, and being able to navigate. The funny thing is they're both flat out historically wrong. Thank you. They're just both. I mean, there's there's a I, I need to pull up the site. Maybe I'll drop it in the link below. But I think it's called History for Atheists. And mm-hmm. it's a guy who's an atheist who debunks all of the foolishness that atheists and skeptics tout about religion. Like, you know, wow. Easter came from Ishtar or Jesus was a copy of Osiris or Horus or something, you know, and they go through and he says there is no historical case to be made but one atheist says it shares it on a richard dawkins website and then all the atheists start sharing it you know because it affirms what they believe and that and then it i think then it makes its way into the circles of the people who come at you as saying yeah look at all this paganism you guys hold to and you know like like no culture ever used a tree as a symbol of something before pagans in northern europe well you know it's like Trees have always had different, widely different historical significance. Exactly. You know, one of the things that I often tell people, you know, I bring up the Apostle Paul in in Acts chapter number 17 when he was in Areopagus, and he contextualized one of their idols, you know, to the unknown God, and he contextualized it and used it to preach the true God of heaven. And and Mm -hmm. what people miss, I think, is uh, not allowing themselves to be able to take something that perhaps might be a cultural norm and point to Christ, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that when we learn to do that, you know, we can glorify Christ in all things. Don't get me wrong, not not sinful things. I don't believe in that. But, you know, for us to honor the Lord Jesus Christ on Christmas, I think brings him glory, right? And as long as our heart is pointing towards Christ, that's all that matters. I've found there's a kernel of truth in pretty much every criticism. And there is a kernel of truth that, that faithful Christians do need to be aware of, which is, has, let's say, let's use Christmas or Easter Mm -hmm. because both work. Has it become overly commercialized? Absolutely. Uh, was Jesus literally born on December 2? No, no. Historically, it would have been the springtime. Is this Sunday the day that Jesus rose or was it Passover? And, you know, like there's and those have been questions that Christians going back to the time of the church councils wrestled with. Yeah. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that then everything about it is automatically pagan. Right. It just means that not everything about it is automatically godly. Right. And, you, you know, I think, I mean, the best theologian of Christmas in my lifetime, before my lifetime, because it came out before I was born, has been Charlie Brown. Or actually, it was Linus. Um, <laughs> in the Charlie Brown Christmas special, when Linus gets up, man, I tell you, you tear up at Armageddon, I tear up. Every time Linus stands up and tells Charlie Brown the true meaning of Christmas, the room gets a little dusty every time because it's such a it, it's it's you know it's saying yes the whole the whole Charlie Brown Christmas special is about the commercialization and the meaninglessness of what should be the day celebrating the birth of the Savior of the world and that's why I love that show 
and you know Linus just bringing the noise every time when he has his mic drop moment with Charlie Brown. Yeah. Uh, but that's we can take the criticism that people have of all of the peripheral stuff, mm-hmm. but you don't have to take that extra step of saying therefore it's yeah. all pagan and you have to get rid of it all and keep this legalistic form of um, you know I don't how do they, how do they in your experience and when I say they I mean cult groups that mm-hmm. believe Christians or followers of Jesus are still under the Mosaic law. Mm-hmm. What do they do with the sacrifices? <laughs> oh, do they just so... ignore them? Or do, I mean, there has to be an answer. They have to have an answer for why they aren't sacrificing animals. And I just wanted to, is it similar to how our faith Orthodox Jewish friends who would say, well, the sacrifices are null and void if there's no temple standing. Um, is do they go that route as well? So there, there are two two aspects. So you have some that are more moderate, and they'll say that when Paul talks about not being under the law or the law being done, that he's only talking about the sacrifices. That that was replaced with Christ, and so mm-hmm. you know that's the only thing. And they'll point to Hebrews where it talks about the blood of animals could never you know, make us perfect. And so they, they believe not being under the law is synonymous with not being under the animal sacrifices. Um, but they'll say, but the other laws, such as dietary laws, feast days, things like that, we're supposed to still keep. And so, of course, they're wrong on that. But then the, the other side basically takes the side that you just brought up. They say that, you know, there's no temple. And then, but, you know, but they believe that it's coming back because they read and you're a great Old Testament. I've learned a lot from you from the Old Testament, uh, but they go to those passages in Malachi that talks about the Levitical priesthood and, and things like that. So they actually believe that there'll be uh, a, the Levitical priesthood will be back and mm-hmm. the, the temple when it's rebuilt. The animal sacrifices will be back. I know there's some Christians that believe that as as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I'm I'm not one of them, but but they Me believe either. you know that all this stuff <laughs> it'll be reinstituted. And then you know the sons of Zadok, you know, and they read through Ezekiel that talks about that temple and the sacrifices. Um, and so they they they're still clinging to that. And and last point on that is when that happens, that's when all the Gentile nations are going to get their payback, and they're going to be our slaves in the king. This is what mm. they say: they'll be our slaves, and they'll they'll pay uh, uh, the you know he that uh, you know took people into slavery, they'll go into slavery. You know they misquote Revelation, and so mm-hmm. you know that that's their whole ideology when it comes to that. It's so interesting because of the overlap that it has with other groups out there. Um, some form of extreme Orthodox Jews in Israel, not certainly not everywhere, certain, not even the majority of, of Jews around the world, but gr- some groups of extreme, like the radical settler groups and others, mm-hmm. believe that same thing only for them, not for, of course, not for black people. Black people are not Jews at all and, and in their minds. And so they, but they would say, yeah, and the Gentiles are going to be our slaves one day. Taking that literalistic reading of Old Testament prophecies and just kind of one-to-one applying it to modern, uh, their group of modern uh, practicing Jews. And then even, even evangelical dispensationalists can start to veer that way. 
with their views of the rebuilding of the temple and the sacrifices are going to be inaugurated. And you even have, and this just blows my mind, you have Christians, American evangelical Christians, will give hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars to groups in Israel whose sole purpose is to rebuild the temple and reinstitute the sacrifices, wow. which completely flies in the face of the entire thrust of the New Testament. But because of their selective literalistic reading of Old Testament passages and then piecing this with a passage from Revelation, and this means that the temple has to be rebuilt because then this person will be able to stand in it and break a covenant. And this person is just this Jenga like tower of biblical <laughs> interpretation that if you just pull one piece out of it and say, hey, what if this is not to be read with that level of literalism that you're reading? The whole thing crumbles. Yeah. But you have Christians that will do that and it will and to the detriment of actual Christians who live and work and have spent their entire lives in the Middle East, like Middle Eastern Christians, mm -hmm. they are the ones bearing the brunt of a lot of these policies or groups that Christians will just give money to because a preacher says, you know, Ezekiel says, and then they'll just read a passage. And that for me, that is one of my major burdens as a, as an Old Testament teacher and Revelation, the, the yeah. two areas that I've kind of focused on because of the real world ramifications that it has. You know, your eschatology determines how you live your life, whether you know it or not. And and for you, I think there's overlap in, in your community because groups are doing a similar thing to deceive Absolutely. the people that you have primarily, the, the people that you have contact with on a daily basis in your community. And the, but yeah. the root, the root deception, I think, is the same, or the root error is the same, which is that inconsistent appeal to literalism. Yeah, but I want to ask you a question, actually, on mm -hmm. that, because I know that I'm often accused of spiritualizing the text. Um, yeah. And, you know, when it comes to a lot of the Old Testament prophecies and things like that, you know, I often use this term, I'll say, uh, you know, prophecy can be obscure until fulfillment. You know, we uh, mm -hmm. some things we may not fully understand how it's going to manifest, um, you know, but what do you do against the accusation of being a person who over spiritualizes the text? Uh, and, and they'll say that you've taken the meaning away from text spiritualizing. Well, I it's 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 a common refrain uh, and what I do is I try to show them all the times that Jesus got misunderstood because his audience was taking his words literally rather than as he really intended them. So I, I walk through uh, John, Gospel of John. This is everywhere in the opening chapters. Yes. Nicodemus does it. Nicodemus, when Jesus talks about being born again, Nicodemus is like, wait, how can you be born again? He, he was taking Jesus's words literally. So you would you could turn that back and say, oh, Jesus, why are you spiritualizing born again? Like it's born again. That's what it means. And that's the whole point. Or when Jesus's disciples, when he said, hey, beware of the yeast of Herod and the yeast of the Pharisees and his disciples start like talking among themselves like we don't we don't have any bread. Why is he telling us to be, you know, because you'd have to keep your dough or your yeah. bread away from yeast so that the yeast wouldn't contaminate during the time when you had to have all the yeast out of the house. So, it, and it's like Jesus, he didn't stop them. 
and correct them and say, oh, actually, I'm speaking in a metaphor to give spiritual truth. He just said, are you still so hard hearted that you don't get it? You know, like he, <laughs> it was very like blunt the way he said it or the woman at the well when he says, you know, if you knew who was offering a drink to you, you would ask him and he would give you living water. And she says, well, where do you get this living water? You don't even have the wells deep. You don't even have a bucket. She was thinking running water, living. I mean, living water is just the way we would say running water as exactly. opposed to water that was sitting in a cistern. Mm -hmm. So numerous times Jesus's audience completely missed what he was saying because they were taking his words at plain meaning, literal value. The big, to me, the most helpful example is when the, when the disciples asked Jesus, Hey, why do they say Elijah must come first? Yes. And Jesus says, let me tell you this, Elijah. Yeah, he does come first, but he's already come and you saw what they did to him. And then the text says, then they knew he was talking about John the Baptist. Absolutely. Well, if you flip back to Malachi four, it nowhere in that passage, does it say, one like Elijah or one with the spirit of Elijah. Well, it doesn't say it. It says, I am sending Elijah. That's right. So when Jesus took that passage and said, it's talking about John, that is Jesus spiritualizing the text. He is because John wasn't Elijah. His name wasn't Elijah. His name was John. Right. But Jesus says, so I just say, you're in pretty good company when it comes to spiritualizing some things in, in prophetic literature, because if you don't, then you miss out on what it's actually teaching. You miss out on the actual symbolism in a lot, especially in prophetic works that are apocalyptic, you know, it yeah. becomes a genre. So, so if you're reading a, a passage about, okay, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, it's a pretty straightforward, you know, out of you, Bethlehem of Ephraim will come one whose origin is from old. Okay, that's a that's that's a pretty decent level of literalism. Mm -hmm. But when you come to behold, behold, I will send you Elijah. That's not literalism. And right. there's I don't know of a formula. There's no algorithm you can put to determine which prophecy you have to take to what degree of literalism. And I think mm -hmm. that. When we look at the Old Testament, like, so Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Isaiah, they would describe the downfall of Babylon with stock imagery, like the sun will be turned dark, the moon will be turned to blood, the stars will fall from the sky. Like they will use a, a specific, but they're talking, if you read the context, they're talking about Babylon's destruction, which mm -hmm. none of those events literally happened when Babylon fell, but it's like when we say an event is earth shattering or something has cosmic significance, you know, it's just, it's exaggerated way of speaking, but it's still normal speaking. Yeah. So if the old Testament does that with the fall of Babylon, then in the new Testament, Jesus comes along and he takes that same image that described Babylon's fall and he applies it to a prophecy against Jerusalem in 70 AD that's going to fall, which is what I believe he's doing in the Olivet Discourse, yeah. then Jesus is saying, look, this was about Babylon, but Jerusalem is acting very Babylonian right now. And the judgment that came to Babylon is going to be fulfilled. And there's, there's this cyclical fulfillment. 
So then you have John in Revelation using the exact same wording and imagery to describe the fall of Babylon, which everywhere throughout the letter he has identified with the Roman Empire in so many ways. Then you start to see a pattern of like prophecy can have multiple fulfillments and still be true. That doesn't mean that it's just up in the air. Right. But it means, like you said, until it's fulfilled, it, it will be obscure. Absolutely. And so some interpretive humility is needed on our part to say, I, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. I'm not going to chart out the end times and lay out a timeline, because guess what? Every single end times chart that's ever been made with any dates attached to it <laughs> has had to be revised. Every yes. single one without exception. <laughs> so that should tell us, hey, why don't we hold our musings about what the future is going to bring with very loose hands there you go. and say, well, the big picture, this is what's clear. And then that allows for things to prophecy to recapitulate. And yes. so if another world empire arises or even a local empire that is acting very Babylonian, then it needs to be ready to face that same judgment as well. Um, you know, if the shoe fits, it, right. it's going to wear it. So that's, that, that's how I had that help at all. Oh, no. Oh, that was an awesome answer. You know, and even when you were talking about John the Baptist, that's one I've actually used in the past myself. And what was interesting about that, they asked John if he was Elijah. And, and he, he said, said no. no. <laughs> but yeah. Jesus said, if you will receive it, this is John. This is Elijah who was to come. So, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. that, that's one of the clearest and most glaring uh, examples. And I often say this as well is how how do the New Testament authors interpret the Old Testament? Because they're quoting it all throughout their epistles. Mm -hmm. You know, when when in Acts chapter, even in Acts chapter number 15, when they quoted Amos 9 in the rebuilding of the temple, uh, I'm sorry, the rebuilding of David David's tabernacle. Yeah. Right. David's house. James attributed it to the integration of the Gentiles within the community of mm -hmm. believers. So it it's just amazing. I love, you know, this kind of stuff. Now I know what, yeah. you know, me and you'll be dealing with next time I bring you on my channel as well. <laughs> this is good stuff. So thank you. Yeah. I tell you, there's um, the people that have done the best job in, in I, I should say, who, who have most shaped how I approach these things. Mm -hmm. uh, you've already mentioned Christopher Wright and Disciple Dojo viewers are tired of me telling them to read Christopher Wright, but I don't care. I'm going to tell them every time, read yes. everything he's written. Uh, but Christopher Wright's done an amazing job of that. And N.T. Wright, no relation, yes. except they're both British. But N.T. Wright has done in his work, especially in his, um, like, Jesus and the Victory of God, or uh, his smaller books, The New Testament for Everyone, has done a, such a wonderful job of, and I may disagree with him here and there on a few specific passages, but mm -hmm. of basically saying, listen, the New Testament authors, when they said a scripture was fulfilled, they weren't thinking, they weren't even intending to communicate there was a prediction and that prediction came true. Like that's how we think of the word fulfilled. But he, he says, no, they were thinking of the whole storyline of Israel, a world of hints and shadows now coming into full light and plain viewing. So Jesus, like when Matthew says, Jesus, Joseph taking Jesus down to Egypt as a baby says mm -hmm. that is what was that thus was fulfilled what the prophet said out of egypt i called my son 
Yes. When you go back, and I do this as an interpretive exercise when I teach on how the Testaments work together. When you go mm -hmm. back to Hosea 11, there's nothing predictive in that chapter. It says, when Israel was a child, out of, I loved them, out of Egypt I called my son. But the more I called to them, the more they turned away from me and they worshiped the Baals. It's an entirely, it, it, there's nothing predictive. There's nothing prophetic in a, in a sense of like future prediction that Hosea mm -hmm. is saying in that chapter, or at least in that section that Matthew quotes. So when Matthew says Jesus coming out of Israel as a baby fulfilled what Hosea was talking about, we know clearly that it wasn't, oh, there was a prediction and Jesus made it happen. It wasn't that, that wasn't what he was saying. He was saying, no, Jesus, and I just tell people, just switch the word around in English and you'll get the meaning. To fulfill means to fill full, to fully fill out the, the whole world of what Israel was experiencing. Jesus then in his body, his self, in his person, fills it fully with its intended meaning. What Israel was a shadow of, Jesus is the reality of. And so even, even at a metaphorical level, Israel metaphorically came out of Egypt as a baby, you know, God's firstborn son. They weren't literally God's firstborn son. That was the metaphor that God was using. They weren't literally a baby. They were, you know, tens of thousands of people. But metaphorically, spiritually, they were God's firstborn son who came out of Egypt as a child. Well, what happens? A couple of thousand years later, this literal child who is right. literally God's firstborn son overall, literally comes out of Egypt as a baby. So it's like Matthew's going, you see, you should recognize this tune. We've been singing it all our lives, but now it's being played in, in its true key. And so, you know, if, if spiritualizing the, the, the prophecy is wrong, man, the new Testament authors were really bad at interpreting prophecy. Exactly. <laughs> That's great. Yes, sir. <laughs> Getting back to your Facebook interactions, because that's where I, mm -hmm. that's where we connected. That's where I met you yes, was, sir. I believe I was trying to think, where did we first connect? And I think I think that uh, our mutual friend, Damon Richardson, mm -hmm. uh, another urban apologist and of right. the reformed Calvinist persuasion. But, you know, we still love him. Yeah. Uh, no, I think. Oh, he, I follow him because he's a great, yeah, everybody should follow him as well. And I, I hopefully I'll have him on as, as well someday too. Mm -hmm. But he quoted, he posted something and it was about Calvinism, I think. And you responded with a rebuttal, not harsh, but just, you know, like a, hey, I'm not. Right. And I was like, oh, I need to check the, you know. And so I clicked on and then I started, I think I saw some of your other stuff and I added you as a friend. So, you know, we could chat and I could follow you. And it's a decision I do not regret because it's been your page, like mine, is a source of uh, a lot of entertainment. <laughs> and you have a lot of people who uh, we have interesting people that gravitate to our respective pages from very different places and cultures and, and beliefs. But now, I listen, think I I enjoy when you chime in too. I'm like, oh, they in trouble now. They am in here. <laughs> they about to get it. So thank you. <laughs> well, I try to because I know I know how it is. Facebook, uh, social media debate and social media interaction is a very. I, I do think it's a ministry that people need to be called to do. I think that people God calls and equips certain people to deal with different 
ways of interacting around the gospel and social media is a new, you know, it's new in the history of the world, mm-hmm. but it's a very, um, it's a very specific skill set, I think. And, and I don't always do it great, <laughs> but I think I do it, it. I'm more comfortable at that than almost any other form of interaction. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I know how, even when you know the answer, or even when you have an answer to what people are throwing at you online, it can just, it can be draining sometimes having to state it over and over again, or having to address the same thing. And you start to feel like this person is just trying to engage in this sport with you. It, it, it no longer yeah. is a, a quest for truth. It's just who can get in the lat, you know, the goodwill hunting idea of like, how do you like them apples? You know, who can get in the last little jab at the other person? And I've appreciated so many times when I, when it's going that route, when another Christian friend of mine or another brother or sister in the Lord comes in and puts like, says something that something that I knew or would have said, or, but it was just, mm-hmm. I didn't have the, it's just like, I was just tired of dealing with this. Right. And so somebody coming in, it's like a yes. fresh, you know, it's like your tag team partners tagging in and saying, let me, let me, you go rest. Let me deal with this foolishness <laughs> for a minute. And it's such yes. a blessing when that happens yes, because it, 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 it reminds you social ministry, social media ministry can be very isolating, even though you're dealing with a bunch of people. Yes. You don't have the feedback of a loving congregation. True. You have who happens to be online at the time and <laughs> you don't hear the amens or the no. head nods or, <laughs> you know, exactly. so those little hints. So that's why I do it, especially on your page. Cause I'm like, you know, I want him to know he's not alone. Thank you. And also <laughs> want them to know that he's not alone because yes, it's not like he's the one preaching aberrant, false doctrine they are and so that's what i try to do uh when i do chime in on your threads always appreciate it always appreciate it yes sir (laughs) what is the most ridiculous thing you've seen and that's i know that you could probably write a novel uh just answering this question but the what are some uh, you can even give a couple examples if you want but just what's what some of the most ridiculous things you've seen masquerading as the gospel or Christianity or, you know, something just so, cause some people literally never get outside of their own Christian religious, you know, community and they just don't even know what's out there. Um, so what are some things, what are some things that you've seen that you just were like, I don't, I don't even have a response to this. It's so, (laughs) yeah, it's so crazy. Yes. You don't have to name names. You don't have to like, (laughs) if you don't want, you don't have to, you can, but you don't have to. Uh, I just, just in terms of like behavior or teachings or just nonsense, foolishness that you've seen. Yeah. So, you know, there is a large push in what is called the prosperity gospel, right? And yes, unfortunately, (laughs) it is just amazingly ridiculous. And as a matter of fact, I recently did a video called um, Carnality in the Church, Mm -hmm. uh, dealing with one, and I'll call one name if it's okay, Uh, one false prophet, Brian Carn, who Mm -hmm. who is known for his shenanigans 
And sadly, though, and one of the reasons, and again, this isn't to castigate him as such. I pray for him that he would repent of some of this stuff and, and truly trust in Jesus Christ. But one of the reasons I targeted him is that you call him into preach at any of these urban churches and the church is packed out. People just flock, mm -hmm. you know, and he carries these same shenanigans. So this particular time he was uh, receiving the offering and he says, listen, my anointing is too high for anything less than a $20 bill. He says, <laughs> he says $20 bills and above, I'll put that money right in my pocket. He says, but if it's less than that, I'll just throw that in the offering basket. And and I'm I'm looking at this crowded arena of people, certainly at least a thousand or perhaps more people in this building just waiting on the stampede of people to leave. Like, oh, this is charlatan, what is he talking about? And sadly, they all clapped and 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 you and I'm telling you, these people get they give. I mean, they have to raise ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars a service, and it's so enraging sometimes because they're taking advantage of people who are desperate because they promise wealth and and goods. You know, in three days you'll see increase, or by the, by this time next month you'll see a new job, or new opportunities, and God's gonna make you a business owner and all these lies. But sadly. He'll come back in town the following month or a couple months later, impact the churches out again. So it's sad. People need to be aware of this. And it's so ridiculous that we have to continue to point it out. Man, I could not agree more. And I would I would be shouting amen in your church if I heard you say exactly what you just said. <laughs> because it's what you pointed out is so right. That's, that's what people don't understand about the prosperity gospel is not the falseness of it just that just on its own the unbiblical yeah. falsehood anything being claimed to represent the gospel that is utterly false that mm -hmm. in and of itself is bad of course but Absolutely. that's not even the worst part it's the defrauding of the most needy and the most destitute people yes. to make them richer while those people are impoverished Yes. And it's it's one of the things that it, it it when you say it infuriates you, I wholeheartedly believe that is the exact right emotion to feel. I can't bring myself to feel any other emotion as strongly as I do furious yes. when I see or hear prosperity preaching mm -hmm. because it's such an insidious and demonic and hellish twisting of the gospel. Yes. at the expense of the widow and the orphan. Mm. It's, it's literally you, story after story of people just desperate to, to, to something, you yes. know, a new job, a family member dying of a disease, them dying of a disease. And it's like they're willing to do anything. You know, the people who sought out Jesus for healing after spending their life savings to see doctors. And, who, right. you know, that's the kind of stuff I think about. And then you just have these, complete charlatans just doing what you're talking. I mean, that I've never heard somebody say as boldly as that, yes. <laughs> but I've heard people over spiritualize it certainly to, yeah. to get people to give. And it's, yeah. man, it is so insidious and it, and it mm. ensnares 
people who are genuinely, who a lot of people who genuinely love the Lord and who yeah. want to follow him and who are trying to be faithful, they'll take that teaching and they'll say, okay, Lord, I, I do love you more than I love my money. So I, I'm going to give this. I kind of think that God has two ways of assessing those type of situations. I think God looks at the heart of the worshiper and the mm-hmm. situation of the worshiper. And then I think he looks at the preacher and the teacher. And I, I think sometimes those are widely differing in terms of verdict Absolutely. on whether righteousness or not. You know, people, I, I, I believe the gifts of healing are still around. I'm not a secessionist. I think the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit still heals. I think miracles still happen. I don't think they happen as regularly maybe here as they do in other parts of the world where there's a more of an openness to the idea. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that God even heals people through false teachers because he never links the authenticity of teaching to the receiving of a miracle. Amen. And right. I mean, Balaam, Balaam was a prophet of Yahweh. The text says that using the mm-hmm. covenant name of Yahweh, but he was an enemy of God's people. I mean, he ended up being an enemy of the people and giving the key to rebellion that would completely undermine and, and, you know, destroy them as a people to King Balak. But Balaam gave some of the truest prophecy that's ever been given about Israel. I mean, Mm. Balaam prophesied the Messiah, the star that would arise. And, um, you know, he prophesied rightly. So he prophesied what God, I mean, God literally was appearing to Balaam and interacting with him. And he was getting a message and giving him a message, but he, nobody names their kid Balaam today because he went down as an example of, of an enemy of God's people and an enemy of God. And so when I see these charlatans and and just the rank foolishness that gets claimed, I just, I think of like Balaam or, you know, Eli's sons that would take from the offering and get rich themselves. And Mm -hmm. I just, I don't know. I shudder to be in those positions. I, you know, James three, one is, always on my mind Absolutely. about the importance of, well, for those who are watching James through what not all of you should be teachers. Those of right. you teach will be held to a higher standard or judge with a stricter judgment. That's right. And that's a verse that should make everybody who teaches the Bible have a little bit of holy fear and trembling. Yes. Oh my. That's so true. You know, one of the things, and again, I appreciate one of the things I push to is sound ministries and, and I appreciate having a sound, uh, church with sound leaders, my sound senior pastor, because, you know, for the last 30 plus years, I've been taught to to just give the people the word of God, (laughs) the word, the scriptures have life in them, not my words. You know what Mm. I mean? And, and even as a, a preacher or a minister, you know, when you were, when I was a younger minister, you know, you know, often, oh, I got to speak. Let me see if I can come up with this certain topic and things like that. Yeah. And I'm not saying, you know, of course you got to minister. Of course you're going to be praying. You want, you want to make sure you're speaking what God wants you to say. But what my pastor said, something that helped me so much that if you give them what God said, you don't, how can you go wrong? 
You know, I don't need no special Empire Strikes Back titles. I don't, you know what I'm saying? I don't need a smoke machine. I don't need to come uh, descending off the ceiling on some ropes or anything. You give the people the word of God, his word. He's already written it down. And preaching yeah. became, and not, not to say that it's easy as such, but he became so much easier in that burden of having to deliver a word became lighter when I recognized that it's not my word or my message mm. that I'm trying to get across. It's God's word. So if I study it and I come to understand what God is saying and give the people that, then God is pleased and the people are edified as a result. Are you officially on the pastoral staff at your church? Yes, sir. I'm one of the associate okay. pastors. Do you rotate? Do they rotate preaching like on and off or do you kind of periodically you'll step in and preach or are you on a regular preaching schedule? Uh, it's not a regular preacher's schedule, but it is periodically, you know, okay. our, our senior pastor, Dr. Wingate, who kind of governs, governs that aspect. Yeah. I, th the reason I was asking is because I think people who preach weekly, like every week mm -hmm. tend to gravitate to different styles than people who preach periodically. Um, I, at least I've found this, if I had to do something weekly, it takes like if you don't if you don't have to do something every week you have a lot more room to be creative and and refine and and develop an idea and you know like you can yeah. but if you have to preach every week it's so much harder to have to come up with different presentations or or illustrations yeah. or the, mm -hmm. whereas and, and I'm not saying it's wrong there are in amazing preachers I that I just, I'm like, I could never do that. I, that's so much that you have to do. When I was teaching every week, the Bible study that I led that was mm -hmm. on our website, it, I, the comfort was, okay, I've got, I'm going to teach this every week. I didn't have to write anything because it was teaching chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. So I was like, okay, I don't have to come up with an outline. It, the outline is the text Thank and you. I don't have to come up with a title the title is what the section of the text is about. And I, you know, it just, it freed me up, but I realized I gravitate to that because I'm more of I, pastor and teacher, preacher and teacher, I think are kind of related, but not exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And there are some people that excel at the teaching aspect and some people excel at the preaching aspect. And I try to tell when people have asked me, will you come, you know, come preach at our church? I always try to say, I'll be happy to, I'm not a very good preacher. Like I, I I'm going to teach and I'm just going to explain and I may not tie everything up with a bow and it may not have, you know, four point or three points and a perfect right. landing. And it, right. <laughs> but I, I am, I'm pretty good at explaining things that are hard to understand to people in a way they can understand it. So if that's what you want, I'd love to come do that. But if you're wanting a fill in the blank of your favorite preacher, um, you know, that's not me. So I, I was curious if you, where do you, where would you put yourself on that preacher teacher? You know, where, where would you land? Are you, are you more right down the middle? Or are you more preacher? Or are you more teacher? How do you think? So I'm going to give you a quote from, uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, he says that there's a preacher and a teacher in him. And oftentimes when it's time to teach, there's a, there's a battle between the preacher and the teacher, but the preacher usually wins. So that's with <laughs> me. 
even when teaching, you know, the preaching usually wins. So, but mm -hmm. uh, I, I actually enjoy preaching and, and teaching it as well. But I, you know, if I had to gauge one, I'm probably more preacher than mm. teacher, though I enjoy uh, both. Yeah. Well, now I've I've watched a couple of your live streams, and you slip into preacher mode real fast. <laughs> See, so I, you. I, you know, like you get fired up, and you'll I'm like, oh, he's preaching now, and you'll even be like, all right, all right, let me get back to the text. And I I think that that's a. It, it's it, I love seeing the the multitude of approaches that people take, yeah, and I think absolutely. that like I've gained so much from people who are known as good preachers, mm -hmm. and then I've gained just as much from people who are known as they're not great preachers, but they're phenomenal teachers. Yes, and if we as long as we accept both things for what they are, mm -hmm. then I think it's a great thing. the The problem is when you have somebody who's like. In, people are expecting a sermon and they instead do a lecture that can be you can, that can be a tricky and, and sometimes counterproductive or when somebody thinks that they're teaching but they're not actually teaching they're just using the text to jump off into talking about what they really want to talk about well that's not you're not mm -hmm. teaching anymore you're preaching right. and it's it's an interesting landscape did, did you do what's your background? Like college, Bible college, seminary, any of the, or are you self-taught, or where your, what are your credentials, other sure. than your the effectiveness of your ministry, which speaks for itself. Oh, bless you. Uh, <laughs> well, the first thing I always say, so I, I love this question because the first thing I always say is that the primary place for biblical education is the local church. That's the that should that should be the primary place for biblical education, yeah. and so thank God that I was a part of a ministry and my pastor against uh, educated, very educated and, and relate the information to the people. I mean, that mm -hmm. should be where we grow, you know, Sunday school has become a thing of the past and Bible classes have become, unfortunately yeah. in the church world, people is, you know, they go to church and, you know, they want to be in 30, 45 minutes. They want to be out and not to see anybody else again until next yeah. week this time. I think that's sad. Um, yes. When, you know, back in the, uh, and actually still in some churches, but it's not uh, prevalent anymore. You know, there were two services. Uh, and, and if you include, like for us, if you include Sunday school, there's three services on a Sunday. Um, and, and I just, I just think that we, the church world needs to get back to that. So I, so that, that start, that, that's the basis where I received uh, much Bible teaching. But then uh, there's Manthano Christian Bible College, which is right here mm -hmm. in Michigan, Westland, Michigan, um, where I started and I finished my uh, bachelor's degree uh, at uh, Grace uh, College in Theological Seminary. And mm -hmm. then I went, I've taken courses at um, Moody Theological Seminary. But mm -hmm. now I'm currently pursuing or, or finishing up my master's degree at Grand Rapids Theological uh, Seminary in partnership with Cornerstone University uh, here mm -hmm. in Michigan. So uh, I, I tell everybody I'm a lifelong student. I'm a learner. And uh, but what was so wonderful, though, and this is why I always encourage a sound ministry. Much of what I learned, even in Bible college, I was familiar with because sound teaching at your home church and being a part, you know, if you, you figure you in Sunday school, uh, every week you've gone through the Bible several times over the course of 25, 30 years. And so mm -hmm. I encourage people that's where growth starts. 
what I see, at least in churches, you know, that I've been in and around and a part of and familiar with is some people have come to think that what church needs to provide is a moving service on Sunday. And by moving, I mean either, you know, profound liturgy or high energy worship or people raising their hands and crying or however you define moving worship. Mm-hmm. Um, they need to provide moving musical experience and a, and a message that makes people feel something. And that's it. That's Sunday. And then throughout the week, they need to get people to meet together in small groups and do life together. And that's it. That's what I've seen, at least here and, and in the Charlotte area. That's a that's kind of the norm is there's a Sunday service and you're going to get your feels and you're going to get. And the it's, I'm not saying it's bad. The messages right, right. can be great. The worship can be phenomenal. So it's, I'm not I'm not critiquing it. Right. And then for your growth. Well, that's what your small group is for. But the problem is there within that dynamic there is almost no room unless you happen to luck out and get a small group leader who is a teacher which is extremely rare there's no room for trained dedicated focused biblical learning unless you just happen to land in a group of people that are all on that same page and want to do that same thing and it's it's a real problem. I mean, it, that's what Disciple yes. Dojo, like, that's why yeah. this ministry exists is because churches don't, people in churches, they, they don't want to leave their church. They love the people in their church. They love their pastor. They're, mm-hmm. they're being taken care of spiritually. You know, mm-hmm. they're, they, they've got somewhere that will marry their kids or grandkids and will right. bury them when they die and will check on them and they're sick. And mm-hmm. the church are doing those things wonderfully, but where the church is dropping the ball is in just unapologetic teaching. Like, you you know, just saying, hey, come here on a what a, Tuesday, a Wednesday night or a Thursday evening or whatever. Yeah. And we're going to, if you want to learn, come and take this course or this class or this study. And there's almost in a lot of churches, this kind of allergic reaction, like, oh, that'll turn people away. Or that'll, you know, nobody wants to do that. Or, you know, they want practical, they want relational, they want... Uh, and so I'm, I mean, clearly, you know, I don't hold to that. I think that right. I've yeah. seen people, I've, that people will come if you field of dreams, if you build it, they will come. Like, I think that applies to Bible study as well. So I love Absolutely. the fact that your church did that. I think yeah. that should be the norm. Absolutely. It's not, but it should be. <laughs> yeah. So it's what just... is your, what's your master's? You're getting your master's right now. How much yeah. do you have left to do? Um, probably year and a half, two years, I'll be done with the masters. It was a, okay. it's a it was a four year, uh, this mm-hmm. particular, uh, and I love the, the school and the college and everything. The only thing I don't like is like each class is like 14 weeks. I'm like, come on, we can cut this in half, but, <laughs> but anyway, but I'm enjoying it, you know, so I'll be yeah. done in, uh, in a couple years. And is it going to be MDiv or is it? Not the MDF. Now there is opportunity for me to stay on and attribute uh-huh. those credits towards the MDF, okay. which I am considering doing if I don't transfer uh, somewhere else to finish the MDF. So that yeah. is something that I am uh, uh, certainly considering doing. But you're working on it, what? It's a master's in what? Or what would uh, it be studies. called? Biblical. Oh, okay. Very yes, cool. Sir. Yes, sir. Do you and did you do Greek, Hebrew? You know, have you yeah. dabbled in any of that? Had to learn it all, or are you? you know, mostly stick to English Bible or what, yeah, so, how do you feel about that? 
That's a great question. I love the Greek. I'm more familiar with. I've taken hmm. some Greek uh, courses, and um, and I got a really good friend who's the man at Greek, and he's like teaching me. Like, yeah. And so uh, Greek, I'm, 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 you know, of course, I'm no Greek scholar, uh, and and the Hebrew. After I completely tackle the Greek and get a little bit more uh, strengthened mm. within the Greek. I want to tackle Hebrew. You'll be one of the people I call up. Just so you know. so. <laughs> Man, I'm going to tell you, I did it that way too. I did Greek first and then Hebrew. And uh, okay. I just, I don't know why I gravitated so much more to Hebrew than Greek okay. to this, to this day. I, I can work my way through Greek with help. Mm -hmm. Okay. I just don't enjoy anything about it because I feel really? so inept at it. But but Hebrew, I still feel pretty inept because I, you know, it's 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 hard if you don't speak a language regularly. It's hard to have mm -hmm. proficiency in it. And and when you're by yourself and not in a classroom, it's mm -hmm. extra hard because you're literally having to be the teacher and the student. Um, and my last last official language class was 20 years ago, so it's mm. it's uh, yeah. it's challenging, but if you keep it up and because of what you do and, and how much work you do in the text, yeah. I, there's nothing. I don't think you, I don't think you learn anything in seminary more important. If you're a Bible teacher than the languages, I think that it, that become, I think all the systematic theology is important, mm. right? but just having the ability to, approach the languages yes sir it, it literally makes all the difference in the world i really do believe and, and that's saying i i was not um i did not go the academic route i was mdiv and i did not go like phd preparation or a thm or anything i was just i didn't know what i was going to do maybe be a pastor maybe be some staff position on church i mean maybe mm -hmm. apologist i didn't know but looking back the thing in seminary i've used more than any other skill yeah. like by a 10 to 1 odds would be the languages wow uh, so you know but what i was going to say this as well thank god for good tools like yeah you know with lagos and things like mm -hmm. that i mean the tools are great you know so i'm certainly not as uh trained in hebrew as i as i know greek but thank god that you know there's certain tools that you and you still got to know how to use them because i i find yeah. a lot of people if they don't know it, you know, giving them two, sometimes it's like putting a gun in the hand of a <laughs> kid, you know, but, but the tools are great though. And learning how to use the tools are helpful. So when I, my first semester of Greek, my first semester of seminary, I took Greek mm -hmm. as my first class. And at the end of that first semester, the teacher, Ed Kazarian, he was our uh, teacher at the time at Gordon Conwell. Mm -hmm. And he said, at, we were done with the final lecture and he said, congratulations. We've, you've, you've put in a lot of work and you've worked hard and you've done well. You now know enough Greek to successfully start your own cult. <laughs> <laughs> and it was the truest thing probably any seminary professor has ever said, because you see this, you see yeah. this all the time. I, I, let me tell you, I've, I've teased on your, you know, we've messaged back and forth and in the comments section, but one of the quick, one of the quickest immediate ways to tell that somebody is going to probably hold some views that are off is when they have a, a badly spelled Hebrew name on social media. <laughs> yeah. When I see somebody who is, you know, uh, 
I don't even want to name some of the examples, but they're always some form of something Ben Yisrael, yeah. uh, Shabbat Ben. I mean, it's just this. You can tell you're like, okay, they probably think they really know a lot of Hebrew, and they probably don't know very much Hebrew at all. Exactly. <laughs> if folks, exactly. folks, follow Mike on Facebook, and you will immediately see what I'm talking about. Like within <laughs> scroll one day's worth of posts, and you will see it. Yes. I guarantee you. <laughs> I, I can post the sky is blue and the people are coming. They, to the, debate <laughs> me on that. <laughs> yes, so, yes. <laughs> they are. They are. I love it though, man. It's it's it it it's endlessly interesting. Well, we had three viewer questions submitted. This was a a, a lady. She asked if Acts two thirty eight is not the plan of salvation, then how were three thousand people added to the church on Pentecost? Now, did you understand that question? I did. <laughs> okay, because I was, when when she sent it, I said, she sent it first, and it was a kind of, I, I, I was like, say it more succinctly, like write exactly what you want me to ask him, because I had a feeling like this is a discussion you've spoken into before, or a passage you've dealt with before, that I have not spent much time, and so I'm, I wasn't familiar with the the importance of the question. So if you want to address it in any way, unpack it a little bit, or tell what it, what is that even, why is Acts 2.38, the plan of salvation, what does that mean? And, yeah. and hand, the floor is yours. Handle this one for us, Elder Mike. Sure, no problem. So Acts 2.38 says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. um, this is the common apostolic uh, denomination text that they believe is the plan of salvation. So in essence, they use this text to preach that except you are baptized and the baptizer must verbally say in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, if that prescription wasn't given, not Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but if you weren't baptized and that person say in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you aren't saved. You didn't get the right baptism and your, mm. your salvation is invalid. And so what they don't want, and, and what's interesting about this is when I, when I first come, well, I'll, I'll say back to Christ cause I grew up in the church and then, uh, uh, you know, I got to be a teenager and went out and got hard headed. But when I came back to church, um, I came through the apostolic organization. And so I spent some years within that group in religion and thank God for, you know, bringing us out of that. But, uh, so I know about this <laughs> pretty well, but, and, and on top of that, just as the experience that was held in Acts chapter number two, verse around verse number four, where it says, you know, they all began to speak in other tongues as the spirit of God gives utterance. Those within the apostolic denomination would say that if you have not spoken in the tongues or other languages, you don't have the Holy Spirit. And so mm. the person asking the question uh, appears to be asking, how is this not the plan of salvation? Because when this happened, 3,000 souls were added. Well, let's say this. The Bible tells us 
in Acts chapter number two, that the disciples and, you know, I've heard theologians say, well, whether it was the whole 120, or whether it was just the apostles who spoke, you know, that's up for debate. But let's say it was the 120 who spoke in other tongues. The Bible says nothing about the 3000 souls speaking in other tongues. It just mm -hmm. says that God added to the church such as should be saved. So um, Acts 2.38, would I say it's the plan of salvation? Well, it certainly includes repentance. It certainly includes receiving the Holy Spirit. But Acts chapter 2 is a descriptive passage telling us what transpired in the text. It is not a prescriptive passage that says that everybody must have the same experience or else their salvation is invalidated. And that's the mm. problem. Our apostolic brethren right? And I, and I use that term somewhat loosely because you got something to say, you know, whether that I let God be God on that. Even. Right. But here's right. what I'll say is that that is a descriptive passage, not a prescriptive passage. And so we need to preach the text as it says and not, not take it as a mandatory process for every born again believer. That's yes, that's a great answer. And that's, I agree completely. I think one of the biggest problems in Bible interpretation that people have is mistaking descriptive for prescriptive Absolutely. and not see, you know, because that's where you get things like there are certain views, there are certain Christian um, kind of spinoff movements that are communalism. They believe in, in every, nobody owns anything. Everybody sells and everybody gives to each other and, and they point to what happened in Acts mm -hmm. and, and not realizing that yeah, that was valid for them to do that. But the text never tells anyone else to do that. Exactly. You know, Jesus never does. And, and the letters in the New Testament don't presuppose that that's happening. Exactly. So, I, yeah, that's a great, yeah, that's a great point to bring up for people watching. And, and about the, not just this question, but I think with it, it's so many questions that would become the norm, especially when they have to do with, there's a lot of, do you get this as much? People have questions about like the mechanic, not mechanics, but you know what I mean? The logistics of baptism and, and that salvific, you know, sprinkle or dunking or pouring immersion versus washing, uh, you know, child or adult. There, there's even, you saw the story about the baptism that the Catholic guy did that was like the Vatican basically ruled his baptisms invalid for the last 20 years because he said we baptize you instead of I baptize you. Did you read that story? No, I did not see that. What? It was I. if I had the tech savvy, I could pull it up. Right. Yeah. There was a, and I don't know who exactly, I don't know what, I don't know the Catholic hierarchy and if it was the Vatican or if it was like a particular arm of the church, but apparently for like 20 years, I mean, thousands and thousands of baptisms said in, we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So got everything right, but instead of saying, I bat said, we baptize you. And so the ruling was that, no, only the priest can baptize. And so saying, we baptize you is bringing in other elements into, I don't know, it was a very strange argument. I, you know, I just thought, well, the, the plural of majesty enough is enough to, you know, render yes. that acceptable. But it, it would show that there people are very specific on things that scripture is way less specific on. Oh. Exactly. 
So the, the next question dovetails on that is, what is your view on the sacraments? And they said baptism and communion. I'm assuming they're asking, I don't think they're asking if you believe in like transubstantiation, but I think they're probably asking, do you believe that, well, I'll, I'll, I'm modifying this question because I want to kind of sure. direct it a little bit. Baptism, do you believe that that there's a specific way that it needs to be done? And do you believe that it is salvific? And so without it, no matter anything else, a person is not saved if they're not baptized. And do you believe when it comes to communion, is are the elements in some way really the body and blood of Jesus? Or is it entirely commemorative and symbolic and there's no actual mystery or, or transcendent thing happening in communion. So you take those in either order you want. Sure. So we'll start with baptism. So uh, baptism is a command, but we baptize believers, right? Uh, I don't okay. believe that baptism or I don't believe in baptismal regeneration. I don't believe that it is in the water baptism that we are saved, right? A believer who is saved, who has confessed Christ as his Lord and Savior is subsequently baptized. And I, I don't think it's something that we should minimize as a person called it a sacrament. You know, I, I prefer the term ordinances uh, given mm -hmm. opposed to sacraments. However, uh, it's vitally... What's the difference between ordinance and sacrament in your, what would you say the difference is for the average listener? Yes, sir. So the difference I would say from sacraments is that, and, and, and it's not that I have a major issue with the word, but I understand how mm. some people use the term because some people who classify them as sacraments make it a necessary sacred act that some way um, dispenses grace. You, you understand what I'm saying? Like mm -hmm. there's some type of grace imputation in the acts and, and, and maybe everybody may not hold it that way, which is why I prefer the term uh, ordinances. I think that we obey Christ and baptize those who believe, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, it's not, uh, it is an outward act that basically testifies of something inwardly that have already taken place. Right. So that's how I would communicate it. So I do believe that the normal practice uh, uh, descriptively in scripture is submersion. And I think that when possible, baptism should be done through submersion, not sprinkling. But, you know, we, we have writings such as within the Didache where they talk about you know, had to be in running water. So as you talked about, and then they also mm. talk about cases where you can't get the running water or cases where a sprinkling may ap apply. Again, water baptism doesn't save. Faith in Christ saves. Mm. We are then subsequently obedient to Christ and we baptize believers. Mm. As it pertains to the uh, communion or Lord's Supper, uh, basically the same. We believe that this is something that should be carried out by believers i do not believe that the the bread or the wine actually become the body of christ right that would kind of get more into transubstantiation things like that uh i believe that the presence of god is with us as the believers which is why we call it communion when believers come together we believe that christ is present with us communally but we do not believe that the bread or the wine becomes his actual body or his actual blood. We, I mm. think that actually would be problematic. 
Have you ever had, this was more when I was at University of Georgia as a student, we had the uh, ICC, the International Church of Christ, and they were kind of uh, prevalent on campus. They were an offshoot of the Boston movement of the Church of, uh, whatever, Church of Christ. I don't know the full hierarchy, but it was an offshoot. And their, one of their big things to do on campus that they did very well was get Christian students, always, almost always freshmen, but Christian incoming students from churches mm-hmm. and to basically break their faith down and show them how they're not really a Christian and then rebuild them into ICC Christians uh, which was a very, it was a cult-like atmosphere. You know, they had somebody who kind of basically made decisions for them and, you know, who you could date, who you could marry, what your major would be. I mean, they, they would kind of couch it like cults do in spiritual language as, you know, uh, being teachable, being humble, you know, mm-hmm. being willing to listen to your elders and all that kind of stuff. But they were basically a cult that controlled people a- right. at the time. I don't know if they've since changed their ways. I heard rumblings in the early 2000s that they kind of maybe had some reform, which I hope they did. But mm-hmm. one of their big things was they would push that without baptism, there is no salvation. And and they would press it as, and, you know, pointed all the passages, you know, repent and be baptized and you will be saved. What must mm-hmm. we do to be saved? And I... I would just in conversation with them because I was doing campus ministry at the time, I would say, okay, just give you a good theology should be able to handle hypothetical situations. So Mm -hmm. let's use an airplane that's about to crash and running out of fuel. Um, People are going to die. And so you're sharing the gospel. There's no way you can baptize anybody. Do those people just go to hell? Even if they believe, Mm -hmm. if they hear your message, or how do you, because your theology needs to be able to accommodate something as weird as it may be. And people do die without the chance physically of being baptized. Uh, you know, so how do you handle that? And, and it was something that, that was the image that I had. And then I got to seminary and, and read from and learned from people who did missions work in uh, the Kalahari Desert or mm. places in Mongolia or other places where they literally, there's not water, enough water to wow. baptize somebody in. And how does the church grow in those areas? And I always took the view of when, when, when we start to limit God's grace by the mechanics of um, hydrodynamics, <laughs> mm. we've, we've missed something. We, we have erred somewhere. Yes. And I think with communion as well, you know, do you guys do wine or do you, or do you like good Southern Methodists and do grape juice? We actually have both, right? Okay. All so right. people have the option. Yeah. <laughs> I think I, I'm, yeah, I think that's the way to, to do it. Some people, yeah, it's gotta be wine. And others are like, it can't be wine. Right. <laughs> I'm like, oh, we're right. putting the cart before the horse for real. Those are good yeah. answers. I, I think we, I might, I don't know if I would, baptism to me is one of those where it's funny, some things, the more you learn, the less uh, dogmatic you are about Mm -hmm. them. Whereas you start off and you've got your view and it's, you know, there's nobody more uh, certain of their knowledge than somebody who's finished their first semester of seminary. (laughs) <laughs> or the first year of seminary, right? But then by the time you've done with seminary, hopefully, and then especially yes. after you've done ministry, there are mm-hmm. things you start to loosen your grip on. 
Not because they're not important, but because they are important. And because you learn that there are multiple ways that people have approached them that are equally valid. So true. And for me, baptism has become, has, has been in that category. The more I've listened to the arguments for and the presentation of people who baptize infants and, and people who baptize only believer adults. Um, and then I look at the history of the church and, and how it's done throughout the, the less tight I hold my view yeah. on baptism. I haven't given it as much thought as I've given other things. I think it's because I'm not a pastor. Like I don't have a, I don't, I don't do any of the sa ordinances, sacraments, whatever. I'm not a, even in Methodism, I'm just a lay person. So, you know, it's not like I have any, uh, it's not like I do any of those things on a regular basis. Uh, maybe I should start like baptizing on YouTube, like sprinkling water at the camera and kind of pull up. Who was the, you remember the guy, who was the guy that used to put his hand up and say, touch the screen? Um, a few of those guys, uh, Robert Tilton. Oh, okay. That's who I was thinking of. <laughs> he used to always say, he, he, there was a, there's YouTube compilations of him going, mm, mm, and then people, of course, add in all kinds of bodily noises uh, to make a compilation of it. But yeah, he would always be like calling somebody out, put your hand on the screen right now, and, and then mm. you send him your money. <laughs> all right, but let me, let me ask you one more, and this is a good, I think this is a good one to end on because it is an open, it's broad question, so you can take it however you would like to answer it. What is mm -hmm. the best and most effective way to share the gospel with a non-believer? How would you answer that question? Yeah. So he here's where I'll probably get in trouble with a few of uh, some of the more, more, more strictly conservatives, uh, because I believe that one of the most powerful testimonies is the way we live. You know, there, there's, there was this movement of late, like, yo, you can't preach the gospel with your life. You have to open your mouth. Well, yeah, you do. Okay. But, but your life of integrity makes a difference. Paul said to the church of Corinth that we, no, he said, you are living epistles read mm -hmm. of men daily and people see our conduct, our character, integrity, right? Before they hear anything that comes out of our mouth. So first, I'm not saying that's the, nobody's going to come to save in faith simply because they saw you. But, but first, when they see your good works, they can give God the glory in heaven. And so we must have a gospel center life. And then I believe that opens the door for the presentation of the Jesus of the Bible. And so I believe that we should, you know, when God opens those doors, we should take those opportunities to let people know that Jesus Christ died for their sins. And if they place their faith, their trust in him, their sins can be parted. A uh, message actually that I ministered on yesterday was from Romans chapter number five that said, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. What did he do? He God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And again, if you place your faith in him, we then become justified through the sacrifice that he made on Calvary's cross. You know, of course, people have to repent. People have to recognize that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that if we trust in Christ, he 
has taken the condemnation or the penalty for our sins. And if we trust in him, our sins are removed and we are justified, made right with God, restored back to fellowship with him, and we can live with him eternally. It sounds like you've uh, you've shared that before. <laughs> you, you, you've said those words before. I can tell there's a okay. cadence and a familiarity. That's the preacher coming out. Definitely. <laughs> I told you that the preacher always wins over the teacher. <laughs> I believe it. I believe it. That's why I'm glad to have him. Yeah, I, that's a great uh, point that your life is your your life isn't the full gospel but your life gives you the credibility to share the gospel. Everybody's different. I mean, even in scripture, there are, I don't know of any two conversion stories that are the same in the Bible. Um, I mean, of course you could say, well, at Pentecost, they all got saved. So there's 3000 examples, but that never happens elsewhere in Acts. Other people come to faith through other means. Your life buys you the ability to be heard by somebody. Because they are like, oh, you're not just, I'm not a number to you. I'm not a notch right, on your belt. Right. I'm not a, you know, like you, you actually, one, you care about me. And two, you, you care about this world and you're doing good. You know, how many, how many people, how many gospel presentations have been shipwrecked by the, the crappy life of the person that's giving it, you know, yes. it just, yes. it, somebody has no credibility and that's what's so sad when, when you have preachers that fall or, yes. I mean, fall, that's a euphemism. When you have preachers that sin and commit yeah. evil, that's what's so sad about it is there, it's not like God can't, I mean, God can, you know, he can speak through a, a donkey. He can speak through anybody, yeah. but you don't, but that didn't give you an excuse to be an ass. <laughs> like just because God can speak through one doesn't give us the license to be one. And, but yet you have people who think as long as they say those four spiritual laws or they hand a track, or they they can lead somebody down the Romans road, that everything else about their life is less important. And it right. couldn't be more opposite. It so could sure. not be more opposite. Man, that's a good answer. I appreciate it. We'll have to get together again on your channel and yes. go do a deeper dive on that. When, when I'm not responsible for technology, then I can do a little more with the, the biblical stuff. But uh, yes. when people come into the dojo, they come into my technological ineptitude as well. So <laughs> work in progress, man. Elder Mike Holloway, founder of Your Urban Church. That's where, where can people, where's the best way for people to find you, reach you, and, and learn more about you? Sure. Go to Elder Mike your urban church on youtube subscribe hit that thumbs up button for us uh, uh hit the notification bell is actually what i'm trying to say hit that notification bell so you can be alerted when we go live we go live often <laughs> and do you uh, have a regular live schedule or is it just whenever you're able to yeah it's not it's not regular uh okay. I, I do go on some most mondays i go live um but but it's it, it can vary so right. normally what i try to do is i'll put something out ahead of time just to kind of mm -hmm. give people an idea that i'll be going live so yeah um you can follow me also on facebook at michael holloway h-o-l-l-o-w-a-y yes and he we are he's on my friends list so if you are on friends with me on facebook you can search and you can find uh, Mike that way, but yeah, folks watch his, his live streams are great because there's interaction there 
and um, there's you know he he takes questions as they're happening, and it's they're they're always it's good stuff. So check it out, and for sure follow him on Facebook, and you can see what I mean with all the fake Hebrew names and the craziness <laughs> that people drop on his page and, and him, he, he, he went and kidding when he says he could post the sky is blue. Somebody is going to come on with some weird Hebrew name and tell him why he's a pagan. So <laughs> check him out guys. Well, Mike brother, thank you so much for taking this time and I'm hoping that all this recorded right and well, and we're going to pray that it does because <laughs> if nothing else we got a good podcast from it yeah, but i want people to see our our beautiful faces so there we go <laughs> guys thanks for watching um if you haven't already subscribed to disciple dojo do that and subscribe to mike's channel you can support both of our ministries and you can follow us what we're doing and um yeah we're just building more community and reaching out so i'm going to get up to detroit soon hopefully and when i yes. do we'll get together in person and uh We'll, we'll have a bite, break some bread, and, and talk shop some more. So. Yeah, let me make sure I know ahead of time. I'll be have to go back to my church and I say, hey, we got a great teacher coming. Maybe we can. Uh... Oh, I'd love it. I'd love yes, it, man. Disciple yes. Dojo. I love coming and talking to other visiting new churches. So we yes, can make sir. it happen. Yes, but I have to get you have to come with me and do some uh, jujitsu at, at my buddy Jason's place. Okay. Too, All right. So. <laughs> All right, man. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Mm -hmm.